future of SMART. A project of Grantmakers for Education will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of SMART podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of SMART, and your host. The EdFunders team returned from our annual conference this year, energized and inspired. For three and a half days in Atlanta, the heart of this nation's civil rights movement, we came together to think deeply about the pursuit of justice. I want to pause on that word, justice. How is it different from equity? If equity is a way to address the imbalances created by imperfect social systems, then justice is about taking this idea one step further. In addition to focusing on interventions designed to address inequities, the pursuit of justice requires us to simultaneously take the long view. It compels us to think about how we change social systems in order to achieve sustainable and equitable access for future generations. The distinction is important and requires us to hold a both-and approach in our lives and in our work. As we explore constantly on this podcast, This type of mindset is often at odds with a modern-day culture that incentivizes short-term thinking, linear theories of change, and a focus on easy-to-measure outcomes. The pursuit of justice requires us to bring players together across lines of difference and power imbalances, and to focus on the ways in which people relate to one another. Our final plenary guest at the conference was Dr. Bernard Lafayette, Jr., a civil rights activist and organizer who served as a member of the Nashville Student Movement and participated in the Freedom Rides, which aimed to enforce federal integration on interstate bus routes. At a moment when many of the hard-won rights of that era seem at risk, it was an honor to hear from someone who lived inside the complexities and opportunities of that moment. Dr. Lafayette's story is a poignant testament to both the distance we've come in this country as well as the work we have left to do. He reminds us that the pursuit of justice requires us to accept that while we may be able to see the promised land, we may not be the ones to get there. Instead, it's the responsibility of adults to give young people opportunities to say to themselves that they will be the ones to get us there. Dr. Lafayette was interviewed by LaShawn Rute-Shatman, Executive Director of the National Equity Project. Their conversation takes us from Dr. Lafayette's childhood in Florida, where the seeds of his commitment to inclusive systems and activism were sown, through to his work with John Lewis, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Diane Nash, and other civil rights leaders. Join us to hear his reflections on nonviolent resistance, the attack on civil rights today, and what he believes young people need to take up the ongoing fight for a more just world. Well, Dr. Lafayette, thank you again um, for joining us. We are thrilled um, to be able to have this conversation with you. I'm going to start by asking you about your early life growing up in Tampa, Florida. 
um, in the 1940s. Uh, what about your experience growing up in Tampa at that time predisposed or motivated you to become involved in the civil rights movement? Well, thank you very much. I enjoy talking about these uh, early uh, childhood uh, memories. Mm -hmm. The reason I enjoy talking about them is so that I won't forget. Yes. What will happen is, and you don't know this yet, when you get older, sometimes you start forgetting. Mm. Okay? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. The names of some of your good friends who have passed, uh, you know the name, but you can't put a face with it. So mm -hmm. I just want to let you know that this is something that will happen, you know. <laughs> so, you might be surprised. I think the future is probably closer than we think it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And yes. I grew up in Ebor City. Mm -hmm. Ebor City is a section of Tampa, Florida. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, I happened to grow up right in front of uh, the uh, Have a Tampa Cigar Company. Mm -hmm. about three floors high. And uh, Mr. Ebor, who the city is, the section of the city is named for, decided he wanted to do Cuban cigars. Mm -hmm. But rather than buy Cuban cigars from uh, Cuba, he bought the tobacco from Cuba and mm -hmm. manufactured the cigars. Okay. So mm -hmm. That was my first experience. Now, being there, made a big difference mm -hmm. because uh, I grew up, uh, I was born in the house right across the street. Yeah. And there was a Garcia Vega cigar company next door. So I was surrounded by a cigar company. Mm -hmm. And what happened is when the people that is uh, who worked there came to work, they brought their children because they couldn't afford daycare. Yeah. So they left the children with me. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the children. <laughs> so I really had my, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I ended up being the, you know, the child care uh mm -hmm. for the workers. Yeah. So, so I got that experience at an early age. Yes. And I used to play games with them and we used to have a huge yard. Mm -hmm. Uh in fact we had vegetables. It was a garden. My grandmother, you know, had a garden there. So in other words, we had uh, Italian children, we had mm -hmm. uh, Cuban children, we had West Indian children, like from Bahamas, mm -hmm. a place like that, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a few white children. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happened is that I it quickly, at an early age, experienced a multicultural yes. community. Yep. And we used to play together. We played football and we played uh, Tarzan and then. I always had to play Tarzan, you know, like swinging in the tree with a rope and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. this was all what I uh, experienced uh, as a young boy. Mm -hmm. And then I finally, um, you know, it was so hot in Tampa, humid. So I slept with my window open, but I could smell the, uh, the coffee beans, the mm -hmm. Cuban coffee beans being roasted. So uh, I hopped out of bed. And um, I decided to start a business. Oh. And this was, uh, yeah, this was mm -hmm. like age uh, 
maybe seven, seven years old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened is that I went and uh, I got coffee. I got a freight and I got coffee uh, wholesale at Las Novedadas, which was in one of the Cuban restaurants mm -hmm. at Cuban Coffee. And I would sell this coffee to the merchants down on 7th Avenue, it's called Broad, mm -hmm. Broad Street mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And I used to, uh, you know, uh, sell the coffee to them before the stores opened. Yep. Because they didn't have any way to make coffee in those days. So 10 cents for the coffee and 10 <laughs> cents for me. <laughs> That's not a bad okay. it's a good profit sharing going on. <laughs> yeah, I have my own business. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was sitting there waiting for my coffee one time at Las Novedadas, and the uh, the worker there was preparing the coffee, and in this huge mirror in front of him, so he could look, you know, and see the customers behind him. So I was, of course, on only one, and uh, I had the tall row of uh, stools, you know, counted the counter, mm -hmm. counter stools. So I decided to lean against the, uh, you know, the, the, the stool. And eventually I decided to put a hip on the stool. And then I slid on top. So I, I was sitting on the stool. Mm -hmm. So the worker there who was fixing the coffee, he looked in the mirror. Uh, but I could tell he was looking outside to make sure nobody was uh, seeing me sitting on the stool because uh, you know people of color were not allowed to sit on the stool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just sat there and I stared at him and he stared at me through the mirror and uh, I didn't move. He didn't know what to do and I was his customer. <laughs> <laughs> Early, so, early, early resisting. That, yeah, from that point on, I sat on the stool. There's so um, many values that you displayed really early um, in your life around community care, um, around educating and, and keeping young people safe. Um, some early resistance, like understanding who you were and some resistance early um, to anything that was acting against your own your own dignity, like the sitting in, right, um, early. At 18, you, you um, left home to attend American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, where you and fellow Nashville students, Diane Nash, John Lewis, James Bevel, began studying nonviolence techniques under James Lawson. Nonviolence has seemed to be a fundamental principle for your activism. Can you share how did you personally come to embrace nonviolence and what role do you think nonviolence played in the success of the civil rights movement? Well, I uh, was uh, John Lewis's roommate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at school. Mm -hmm. And um, I was also the assistant librarian, mm -hmm. even though I was a student. Mm -hmm. I arrived at college uh, two weeks before it opened. Mm -hmm. I had the, well, the best room on campus, you know, pretty large. And that's why John Lewis uh, became my roommate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, 
John Lewis uh, tried to persuade me to go to these meetings that Jim Lawson was mm -hmm. uh, conducting mm -hmm. at Clark uh, Methodist Church. And I, I said, John Lewis, I do not have any time for any more work. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> he said, well, but you, this is what we talk about at night, you know, all the time, you know, mm -hmm. segregation, mm -hmm. discrimination and stuff like that. Yes. So I just went to these, I went to this workshop just to uh, satisfy John Lewis, you know. But once I got there, uh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. And here's something that's very important for us to remember. Mm -hmm. Now, even though I was uh, in the ministry, and that, you know, means that you uh, care, you know, about people. And, you know, that's what we talk about, love mm -hmm. one another and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, but these workshops in nonviolence, like Tim Lawson was doing, in the kind of uh, theology that uh, Martin King was talking about, had to do not only with how you love one another, but how you make sure that mm -hmm. others love one another. Mm -hmm. You don't mm -hmm. just go through life, okay, mm -hmm. as a person um, right. loving one another, mm -hmm. but it's important for us to uh, help others love one another mm -hmm. and, and, and be a loving community. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea of nonviolence bring those concepts together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and not only just praying about it. That's right. But taking some kind of action off your, get yes. off your knees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And be able to, to, to take some action mm -hmm. that can bring about the change. Yes. Right. Because yeah. that's what, that's what the behavior is a thing that, mm -hmm. that, that, that causes the problem yes. and the pain. Yes. Not just thinking about, you know, segregation uh, mm -hmm. and discrimination and, Hanging mm -hmm. people, but mm -hmm. you think about the, the pain that the, 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 the people. And then the other thing that uh, Jim Lawson taught us that things could change. Yes, yes. So between Martin Luther King and Jim Lawson, so mm -hmm. I got so excited. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to stay up at night in the library, so I tried to keep that going. But uh, you know, I got involved in going to these things, and I learned so much about how life is not so separate, even professions, and that we began to understand how different components relate to each other. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and and looking at wholeness rather mm -hmm. than just simply looking at the parts. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the separation. Even things that are separated relate to each other. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So nonviolence helps people understand how they relate. So you're right. not just looking at the North Star, okay? But you're looking at the constellation. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So instead of becoming, uh, growing up being a, a xenophyte, mm 
you uh, mm. become a cosmopolite. Mm. Mm-hmm. You better come on, Dr. Love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So this so the, that, the relation, that's the point I'm that's making. Right. That's right. So it makes us aware of the relationship. Yes. And how one uh, component depends on the other. Yes. I, I, I love that. I so appreciate um, the connection that you were making um, about nonviolence teaching being about um, words and deeds. You talked about it as faith um, and action, right? Um, and that that teaching also helped us understand our interrelated existence. You're, you were activated in this in this period and with these teachings by 19 you were already conducting sit-ins in segregated restaurants and businesses and by 20 by age 20 you co-founded with others Ella Baker again Diane Nash Julian Bond the student nonviolent coordinating committee can you share a salient memory um, about working with SNCC um, and the pivotal role that SNCC played in the movement? The Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee was made up of student leaders mm-hmm. from various colleges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they came together mm-hmm. to form this uh, student organization. But what people uh, in the history doesn't do a good job uh, mm-hmm. is uh, the appreciation for Martin Luther King. Martin yeah. Luther King was the one that asked Ella Baker Mm-hmm. If she would pull those students together, uh huh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Now remember, Martin Luther King was down in Montgomery, Alabama, mm-hmm. and he understood that one of the important uh, strategies and tactics in bringing about change, yes, is recognizing that there were different uh, groups. But they had the same, uh, you know, thing in common. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the student leaders from the various, uh, you know, colleges had come together in um, their own communities, like we did in Nashville. Mm-hmm. You know, we did it in Greensboro. We did it in other places. Mm-hmm. And so Martin Luther King wanted to bring those students together. And he asked Ella Baker, who was working with him on his staff, if she would do that. That's why we met at Shaw University, because that's where Ella Baker went to school, Shaw University. So I went down there, of course, you know, with. Uh, People you mentioned, you know, the uh, John Lewis and Marion Barry and others, so that we formed SNCC. And um, Ella Baker, of course, and one person we, we, we leave out, which is very important, is that uh, SNCC had two adult advisors. Mm-hmm. Ella Baker, but also Connie Curry. Mm-hmm. Connie Curry was a, a younger, a white woman who worked very closely with Ella Baker. 
and uh, she was there, and uh, she helped to, uh, you know, supervise and uh, to help support, uh, you know, the SNCC group. So yes, it was uh, that that group that made the difference uh, when they came together in Nashville. We tried to uh, focus not only on desegregating the lunch counters, but we desegregated the movie theaters. And the other place we desegregated, okay, was places where they had lunch counters, like Crest, Cresties and uh, Crystals. Uh, we had uh, uh, the bus station. We actually desegregated the Greyhound bus station in Nashville mm-hmm. when we desegregated the sit-ins mm-hmm. and the dime stores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We also, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't know this, desegregated the movie theaters. Yeah, yeah. Now they didn't have lunch counters as such with stools and things, but they did serve people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we enjoyed uh, going to see the movies as well, you know, so they were desegregated. So by the time the end of the 60s, uh, uh, 1960 rather, we had desegregated most of the downtown area. Yes. Okay. One of the things that it's recorded that, um, that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King um, said in acknowledgement of the role that student leaders were playing in that time. Um, it's it's written that he said this in, in 1960 um, in North Carolina. And he said, what is new in your fight is the fact that it was initiated, fed and sustained by students. And I think when, when we're taught about the civil rights movement and and all these folks who are here who are focused on creating systems change, it feels like there's a way in which we forget the age of the of you all as student leaders in that time, like the courage, the strategy, the discipline, the perseverance. And you all weren't even twenty five years old yet. You are a fierce advocate of youth leadership in this activism. Why is this so important to you? I believe that what young people say to themselves is more important than anything else. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I was on a streetcar mm-hmm. in, in an early age, okay? And uh, I was uh, probably about, I don't know, seven years old, maybe. And my grandmother and I used to travel a lot. They say I used to hang on her dress tail. And uh, that was true. (laughs) I was there with her, okay? She was very smart. So we used to catch the streetcar, which was they call the trolley car. But in those days, you would uh, be required to go to the front of the uh, walk on the streets, go through the front door of the trolley car, uh, we call it a streetcar, and deposit your uh, fare 
and then you had to get off at the front door and walk to the back door, which was the side door in the back. That's how the black people and people of color aborted the, the trolley car. But this one time uh, we were walking together and uh, you know, my grandmother and I deposited money and then we got off the walk. And I used to run to the back and jump on the steps and that way you keep the door open. Because mm-hmm. the, the conductors sometimes would take your money and while you were going to the back door, they would close the doors and take off with your money, your fare. Mm-hmm. So I knew I found a way to, uh, okay, not for them to close the back door. So we run back there. So I did, and my grandmother was uh, coming. She was all dressed up. She was looking good. And she had a hat on and had a high heel shoes. And she was walking real fast. And her heel got caught in the tracks of the tracks, around the tracks there. And she fell, boom, in the middle of the street. She weighed about 300 pounds. <sighs> I didn't know what to do. So I jumped off the, the steps of the trolley car while they were moving. This guy was taking off with our money. Mm-hmm. But what was I going to do? I jumped off that uh, step and went and tried to pick my grandmother up. No, that was not possible. Because mm-hmm. I, I was too small and I, you know. But I remember saying this to myself. When I get grown, mm-hmm. I'm going to do something about this problem. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, to answer your question, mm-hmm. I think it's more important mm-hmm. for young people to say something of, to themselves yeah. based on their observations mm-hmm. and what they experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do What is your life going to be like? Mm-hmm. What are you going to accept and what are you not going to accept in life? So I think it's so important for us to get the best ideas to young people as soon as possible mm-hmm. so they can say something to themselves. Right. And there's a role, I, what I'm appreciating also is that there's a role you've pointed out, like there was a role for adults in actually supporting the agency and activism of student leaders. There is a role for us to play. It's not just students go off and as adults, we don't have any responsibility to supporting supporting them. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think it's uh, the main thing that we can do as adults is to think about what will the next generation experience mm-hmm. and also how could that next generation be prepared what resources do they need? What knowledge do they need? What practice do they need now that's going to make the difference? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And and uh, what's interesting is that it, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, important for um, us to practice now what we're going to do when we get grown. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like Jim Lawson, mm-hmm. I learned the whole idea of role play from him. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you have to practice what change that you're going to experience. So yes. actually, when we started the city of Nashville, we started with the training. And we used to go sit in, but we left when the policeman came to arrest us. Mm -hmm. uh, we came back and we rehearsed what we had experienced. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn this until I got a, a, my uh, a master's uh, mm -hmm. degree program at Harvard University. And I realized that role play mm -hmm. is for the purpose of training our emotions. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. It's one thing when you get down there and if somebody do something to you and you react to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is security? What do you do when you secure yourself? You protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. And... Uh, I learned something from Jim Lawson, for example. We were bringing up the rear. That was, uh, in other words, we had sit-ins, and then we would go back to the church mm -hmm. after we had our sit-ins. We didn't stay to get arrested. Yes. We, we didn't get arrested until the students in Greensboro got arrested. Because right. the chaplain called Jim Lawson and said, what can you do to help us? And John, uh, Jim Lawson decided that we were going to have a march. So we had a march downtown. We didn't go sit in. We had a march. Okay. And then we said, well, why are we marching in support of those who are getting arrested? Mm -hmm. So we went back to the church and got ready to get arrested. <laughs> That's why they got arrested before us in Nashville. Yes. Because we were supporting them. Yeah. And yeah. so we were ready then because we had gotten uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, practice and, and got our philosophy together and all that kind of thing. So we were ready. So the preparation is important. It's not just saying, well, I don't like what's going on, so I'm going to go protest. Mm -hmm. uh, no, protesting is not enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Testing is, is important. Okay. And, but you uh, have a strategy for change. Yes. Yeah. Not just, so protesting is not enough. There are yes. other things you have to do. Like build coalitions. And that's yeah. what Martin Luther King was doing when he built the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Coalitions. What happened in Montgomery, Alabama? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just one organization or one church. So I'm 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 loving this. I want to like get into this a little bit more because part of what we part of what students of the civil rights movement or certainly what we uh what we learn about in school, um is these very public displays of activism, of resistance and courage. But to your point, there was there was a multitude of strategies that were actually being employed simultaneously, not just the sit-ins, not just the not just the protests, not just the marching. Um, share a little bit about the other things that were happening that were part of this strategy that we didn't see and may not have been written about. What else was going on? We used to meet, and each of us had different roles to play. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, uh, Diane Nash, her role was to work with the media. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we had one of the reporters in our student meetings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? 
so we can make sure that the message that we got across okay. was not just us talking to ourselves, okay. but we were reaching a larger number of people. Okay. And some of those people were not just sympathetic towards our movement. Some were uh, very much opposed to the movement mm -hmm. and opposed to the goals we're trying to reach. So we always wanted to uh, uh, raise questions in their mind to get them to think about, okay, why was this change necessary and important? So it wasn't just pushing people back, it was pulling people forward. Yes. Yeah. So we had to think about that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And David Haberstam, who was one of the reporters there in Nashville, was the one that we had in our meetings. And the reason we had him in our meetings is because he could say the same thing three different times, three different ways for the same purpose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So even when you edit what he had to say, mm -hmm. everything left still made the same point. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the strategy of care. Okay. Yes. Strategy, communication strategy. Right. Uh, now here's what I want to say that's not so known. Mm -hmm. A couple of things. Mm -hmm. We all had different roles in the uh, movement. My role was to say nothing. No. <laughs> My role was to say nothing. Uh -huh. My role was to listen uh -huh. and to make sure that what we were discussing and what we were deciding on mm -hmm. and what we were communicating with each other in mm -hmm. our, uh, our meetings yeah. in Nashville and make sure we did not leave our meetings with any disharmony. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. So my role was to say nothing, but to listen to what people said, mm. how they said it, and the reaction of the others who were listening. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that by looking at people's eyes, mm -hmm. whether they agreed with something, or they uh, also their arms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when folks disagree with something, they don't say anything. Mm -hmm. They put their chin in the air and yeah. fold their arms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would... my job was to make sure that we did not end our meeting unless we all had harmony mm. among each other. Mm -hmm. And many times people say, oh, I thought you meant this when you said that. They say, oh, no, no, you know, I wouldn't say that. I... So they sometimes people misunderstand. That's right. Mm -hmm. And my point is, we got to make sure that everybody stand under each other. Mm -hmm. So we want mm -hmm. them to understand mm -hmm. and not misunderstand. You, there, you all were even strategic about the culture, about people make, making sure, about making sure that there's shared understanding, um, that there's a culture of commitment and there's agreement about what you all were what you all were planning to do, having each other use, having each other's back, as it as it were. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, one thing was interesting is that once we had that uh, meeting, uh, uh, Diane Nash was the one that won the mayor over mm. after we had that march after mm -hmm. the bombing mm -hmm. took place. Mm -hmm. And do you know what? There was a mayor's central committee that was organized. Mm -hmm. To respond to yeah. uh, that uh, our movement, mm -hmm. and they had a meeting. Mm 
may have been West. And he invited us as a student group come, to come down and to go over the proposal they had come together and put together. And they, this, this proposal made of Black City Council members as well as business folks. Uh, they had people who were president of Tennessee State and uh, they had met together, the mayor's committee. Mm-hmm. And they come up with a proposal as a solution to the segregation. And they invited us to come down to listen to it. And we did. We got to the door of the office where the meeting was taking place. And they told us we could only come in one by one. Mm-hmm. One by one. Mm-hmm. What was, if we had left our schools, different schools, and we come over there. And you know what happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Diane and Bevel uh, and all the rest of them said, no, if they're going to meet as a group, then we have to meet with them as a group. What's this one by one? Mm-hmm. So they started to walk away. And I said, wait a minute, hold it. We've come to a very important part here. Mm-hmm. One period where they are proposing to share with us now a solution to the segregation problem in the, in Nashville. We shouldn't walk away. What we should do is go in one by one and say thank you and then leave. Don't give any opinion or any uh response mm-hmm. and then when we get together okay so we get together right after this and then we'll decide whether we, they told us the same thing okay and what our response would be and they did share the same proposal Do you know what that proposal was I wouldn't tell you this unless you were sitting down <laughs> They proposed to integrate the lunch counters. Mm -hmm. Their idea of integration was the first 10 seats at the lunch counter would be for white only. Mm -hmm. The middle 10 seats Mm -hmm. would be integrated. Mm -hmm. White and black, any empty seats you can find, you can put there. Mm -hmm. And then the last 10 seats would be black only. Mm-hmm. That's integration, something for everybody. We came back to them and said, "No, that is not integration. That's not what that's not what we were trying to accomplish." Yep. For us, people should be free to sit at any empty seat yeah. on third and wherever they are. Okay, so we didn't accept it. Now the thing is. It amazed me. These are best minds come up with this. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, and then, uh, oh, oh, I should tell you this, which was showed some wisdom. Mm-hmm. They felt that if we started out that way, mm-hmm. first 10 whites, mm-hmm. next 10 integrated, mm-hmm. next 10 uh, mm-hmm. segregated, blacks, you know, Eventually, 
people would get used to seeing black and white folks sitting at the counters, and they would gradually sit wherever they saw a seat if they wanted to eat. An incremental uh-huh. mm-hmm. approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. gradually you would uh, make it happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant on their part. Yeah. They were so smart. Mm-hmm. Okay. We were not talking about where you would sit. Yes. We were talking about why. Something Did you fun. have, okay, yes. segregation? Yes. Can you talk about what role you believe community led efforts play in reshaping, in this case, educational systems to be more just? And how should grant makers be thinking about the role of community or their engagement with community? Education is not necessarily what you have here. It's the investment that you're making. That's that's what we're talking about here. So you're not just simply talking about how you want some people to behave. Mm-hmm. 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 And so their their behavior might be temporary. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what comes next? So what you have to do is think about the systematic approach. Mm-hmm in terms of social change. Mm -hmm. Now, to be honest with you, I am surprised that we are dealing with some of these Mm -hmm. uh, racism issues today. And we fought very hard to change yesterday. Mm -hmm. So I have to go back and say, what didn't we do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? And uh, I've come to the conclusion that we did what we should have done, but human behavior is just like the weather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't control That's right. mm-hmm. Okay, waves of water. Mm-hmm. You don't control uh, the wind. And when the wind starts, okay, we lose. And we're intelligent. We got degrees. We got all kinds of uh, resources, like uh, you can have funds and you can have money. But the wind can take control. You got a nice house, blow it down. You got a nice family. The wind blow them away because we have no control. Now, the question is, why does that happen? Why? Mm -hmm. Now, Martin Luther King is the only one that's ever given me a solution to this problem. He said, I've gone to the mountaintop. I've looked over. What did he look over? He looked over all that valley. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. He said, but I, I've seen the promised land. And he also announced that he said, I may not get there, but I believe we're going to get there. Yep. I would say that the best thing you can do is to focus on how you can help young people 
appreciate, number one, their own strengths, their own talents, and the potential they have of being strong. And then uh, the motive, when they look at life, they must say to themselves, what am I going to be able to do to make a difference? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now that's where we can have hope. When our young people say, I'm going to work on changing this. Mm-hmm. We've seen that, yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's what they can work on. Down, it feels like both that's some advice to us um, who are trying to create environments um, for young people where they are thriving and and are contributing um, productively to the kinds of communities that we are, that we that they'll inherit, right? Um, so that feels like both some advice, but it also seems like Dr. Lafayette, what keeps you encouraged and hopeful? Because I was going to ask you that. What is What's keeping you encouraged and hopeful, even as we combat all these new attacks um, against a a more inclusive um, educational system? Um, And it sounds like young people and and what they have the capacity to do is one of the things that keeps you hopeful. Is there something else? Uh, It's important that we see ourselves not simply born in a community, of our state, but that we are world citizens, that we live in the world. Um, I want to say thank you, Dr. Lafayette, for just spending some time and sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.